0: Your Bibles this morning we will be in the book of First Peter. Continuing our series, going through the book of 1 Peter, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. If you're looking for 1 Peter in your Bible, it's toward the back. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. If you hit John's or Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, it should be on the screen behind me if you need it. But we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 4 through 8 this morning. <clears throat> As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I don't really think of myself as much of an artist. But I like to appreciate good art. If you look at my Instagram account, most of the people I follow actually are either friends of mine directly or comic book artists so that I can see whatever it is that they're working on. There's some art that you see and it causes a response in you. It opens your eyes to new things. But even art that doesn't necessarily have a deeper lesson behind it, whenever you see it in a museum, I find myself always impressed by it, just the mechanics of it, the fact that they were able to paint something that looked like that. It could be something as simple as a Bob Ross-style landscape, but I'm still able to appreciate it because I see all that went into creating whatever it was. There were raw materials. There were natural dyes. There was water, and there was thread and hair. These things were brought together and mixed to make paint, canvas, brushes. Then the artist took those new materials and mixed them together to make something new again, something incredible. There was raw stuff, and then there was useful stuff, but blank stuff, and now it's new stuff that could be worth millions of dollars, or maybe it's just going to hang in a motel somewhere. But there's been a ton of progress made in the final product that we see, but way down deep, whenever you get down to the molecular level, whenever you actually look at it, it's still just those same materials. It's still just those same things. All that we see, even in Van Gogh's Starry Night, can be broken down to where we understand that it's still just dye, still just oil, thread that's been progressed to the point that we now are moved by that creation. It's not quite the same thing that we see in our text today, but I think it's something similar. You see, in the hands of God, He is doing things with us, His people, making something new and better out of who we were. The progress that we'll see in this text isn't necessarily linear. It's not always from point A to point B. It's not something that you go from the beginning all the way through to the end. As if we'll go through all of these steps in the same order, always proceed from one to the next. But I think we'll see that God is making something new out of the people that he has made new. So today we'll see four instances of progression in the Christian life this morning. Four progressions in the Christian life. The first progression in the Christian life that we'll see today is that we progress from death to living stones. We progress from death to living stones in the Christian life. Look back at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. All of this happens. All that we see in these verses, all this progress that gets made, it comes as we come to him. As we come to Jesus, that's really the driving theme of everything that Peter's been saying in these first chapters of his letter, that because of God's plan to save his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel now has effects on those to whom it applies. If you've been born again, if you're in Peter's audience, if you are an elect exile, then you should recognize what happened in that transition for you. So now you should live your life out of that new life that you've been given. You should continue to progress in that new faith and in that new life. But all of that, everything, begins with him. Everything in our text begins with us coming to him. It's assumed that we're coming to him. And it's as we do this that we're able to progress through all that the text is going to show us this morning. And the him that we come to, this Jesus, he is the one who is a living stone, which was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Though men rejected him. And killed him. In the sight of God, he was and remains chosen and precious. You see, men didn't see him for who he was. But the Father in heaven who sent him, he was pleased by the obedience of the Son unto death. That's the work that he was sent to do. The work he was sent to accomplish. And who he is and what he's done shows how precious, how laudable and praiseworthy he is. But Peter doesn't just call him a man who is rejected but precious. He calls Christ a living stone, which is rejected but precious. So he's living because though he was dead, he rose from the grave and is now alive, so living. But by this, Peter also means that he's active, he's moving, he's got juice. Just as at the, the end of the last chapter, the word of God which continues forever, it is living and abiding. So also, Jesus, the word of God, is a living stone. But that's an oxymoron, right? Like, stones aren't alive. They're, they're stones. They just sit there. People who show no expression on their face, we might call stone face. Some of you on a Sunday morning, believe it or not, I might describe as stone faced a lot of the time whenever I'm preaching and I see you. They don't move. There's no life there. Basically, by definition, a stone has no life. If they were alive, they wouldn't be stones, right? They'd be animals or plants or something else. Christ here is a living stone to reflect both his energy, living, and his steadfastness. The fact that he is a stone. He's a solid rock. He's alive, that's a fact, but he's as solid as a stone is. He's as immovable and unchanging in his promises as a stone would be. And as we come to him, the one who is a living stone, chosen and precious, we become like him we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up. So Peter's saying that coming to Jesus actually is what makes you like Jesus. We know that in the gospel, when we come to Christ, we receive that which is His, and we're now identified with Him. Where before, we had only our sin, only our death. We now have Christ in His life, His righteousness on our behalf given to us. So because of who He is and what He's done, we've changed, we've progressed from the death that we were in to now this new life that we've been given in Christ. And I think Peter's doing a lot here with this stone language. It's a reminder of what's happened in the gospel, that once we had hearts of stone, but now God, in causing us to be born again, has given us a heart of flesh. So where we were only stones in the dead sense, we've now been made alive with Christ. Living stones. And this reminder comes from Peter, the one who Christ remained from Simon, to Peter, which means rock. So the rock is the one telling us that just as Christ remade Simon and made him, through his confession, a rock of the church, we also have had this same transformation in us, made into living stones like Christ in the same pattern after Peter. Peter's audience here is the the elect exiles. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to the church that was already experiencing some kind of persecution, but was going to continue to see that persecution increase. And think about what that would mean if you heard that Christ is the living stone and you after him are being made into that same living stone like him. That taking them from death to life, from death to living stones. In that instance, what has Christ not enabled you to do? What could you not withstand if you know, if you are able to recognize that you are now a living stone like Christ? What persecution can you not endure now once you know that? The beginning of the Christian life, this transformation and progression from a dead heart of stone to a living heart of flesh, which makes you a stone not outwardly but inwardly, it sets up the rest of the progress we're going to see today. We've gone from death to living stones, but from there we continue to progress from living stones to a spiritual house. That's the second progression of the Christian life that we'll see today, from living stones to a spiritual house. Look back at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So it says that we, now who are the stones, are being built up. So there's a strong sense of progress there, that, that idea that's being uh, given to us through that idea of being built up. Built up versus torn down. I mean, we would recognize building is better here. That's the language we see through the New Testament, that this idea of you, the Christian, progressing in the faith is a building up of you in the faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So here we're commanded to encourage one another and to build one another up, that this is a good thing. This is you helping whoever is beside you move forward in the Christian life. That's what it means to be built up as a living stone. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says something similar. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So again here, building up is Progress. Whereas there is a knowledge that puffs up, which is bad, it artificially builds up. Think like puffer fish, one of those inflatable sumo suits that a pinprick is enough to remove the inflation, and then you're just left with a big, poorly fitting sack. But love doesn't inflate in that sense. Love builds up. Love causes to flower, to blossom, to grow up. Acts 9:31 has the same language so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied so here peace and being built up those things are closely connected no one would dispute that true peace is a good thing so we should all long for peace among ourselves and between churches and other places And that peace that we are able to experience here leads to the buildup of the church, of this church. And closely connected in that text is the idea of growth. The church multiplied as it had peace and was built up. So when we are living stones and we are being built up, numerical growth, I think, tends to be the result. Now, I want to be careful here to say that bigger is not always better. More people, it's not always a good thing, depending on what it is that the people are assembling for. More people to go to a Taylor Swift concert is totally fine. More people in a riot is a very bad thing. So bigger isn't always better. More people isn't always the goal. There are bad ways and bad reasons to grow larger. But the context here in Acts is that when good things happen to the church, it grows. It grows. And I hope that you can hear my heart whenever I talk about the growth of our church, which I don't really think I do all that often. Both the the growth that I think we're currently experiencing and the growth that we hope continues for us. The goal here isn't size for size's sake. The goal here isn't more people so that there's more people listening to me. The goal here isn't more people so that we have more money or more resources or more volunteers to bring in other more people and just to create a synergistic, never-ending cycle of more and more people. That's not what we're here to do. The goal is health. The goal is for us to be built up as a spiritual house together in the pattern of Christ as God has planned for us. The goal is to be built up. And yeah, I think healthy things tend to grow when we're encouraging one another, when we're loving one another, having peace with one another, being built up together, I think growth happens. I think that growth is infectious. So I think good growth is a good result of health, of healthy conditions. But you have to also see here in Peter's metaphor that part of your progress in the Christian faith is not just about you. One stone does not make a house. It doesn't matter how solid, how stone-like that stone is, how big, how great that stone is. One stone by itself is a rock. It's not a house. But it says we, like living stones, are not only being built up personally or individually. It's not just me being built up. It is us being built up. We are being built up corporately as a church. We are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, the people around you in this room are part of why we gather for worship. Yes, absolutely. The focus is on God. It is not on us. From the time that we say the call to worship at the beginning of the service to the time that I say the benediction at the end of the service, the goal is for everything that we do to be vertically oriented. The goal is no longer for you to care who is around you. It is only for you to join whoever is around you in the worship of the God who has saved you. That's what we do. That's why we try to do things the way we do them. But you don't do that alone. You worshiping alone is not God's design. You can't fulfill what Peter is talking about here on your own. It requires other people to be with you. It requires a church to be with you. And I think it's helpful to remember that specifically today as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together at the end of our service. The Lord's Supper, it's not a value meal for McDonald's. It's not that you get what you wanted and now you eat it, and at the end of this at least, you just want more. It's a family-style meal where we're all coming together to eat the same thing at the same time. Part of the point is that you are not only thinking about Christ's sacrifice for you as an individual, rather you're also thinking about his sacrifice for us as a people, as his people, his church. You can't take the Lord's Supper by yourself. It's a church activity to be done together. That's why Paul tells us to wait for one another before we take it in 1 Corinthians 11. You taking it alone is not what he had in mind. You can't worship, you can't have church on your own as one spiritual stone you have to come together to form a spiritual house we gather to worship if you're not here you might wish you were here you might listen to christian music while you're on the lake you may tune into a service and watch it or hear a sermon or read your bible on your own and that's fine that's good i'm not saying not to do those things but it's not church it drives me a little bit crazy whenever i hear someone say i had church in the deer stand this morning No, you didn't. How many people were with you in that deer stand? But my understanding, I'm not a hunter, but my understanding is that deer stands are really fit for like one person. You get more than one person in there. That's not a good situation to have in that deer stand for the most part. Maybe you'll have like two people. So you might have done good things. You might have done spiritual things, but it wasn't church. You might have been built up in the faith and edified by what you experienced. Yeah, sure, that listening online, listening to a sermon, listening to worship music, whatever, that's better than like watching NFL today, I guess. If you're out of town, if you're only able to do those things, great, do those things. It's a good thing, but it's not a church. It's not what God has planned as the normal pattern of your life. Church, literally, that word means gathering, the assembly of believers, you can't do that on your own. One person cannot gather. You have to have other people around you. You may have tried to be built up into the best living stone that you can be, but if that doesn't also come, involve coming together with other stones to form God's spiritual house, then you're leaving part of God's design on the table. You're leaving part of what God has planned for you on the table. I was just the wrong age to get super into Power Rangers. I don't know, something about the being born in 1992, I was a little bit too young, I think, for the beginning, a little bit too old once it kept going. If you're a little bit older than me, Voltron, think that. Gundam, if you're into something else. I was a little too young for some and too old for others. But when you watch any of those types of shows, how it happens every time, The heroes get into a big machine, and they fight the big bad guy. You know how that's always going to happen. They fight as regular people, and they lose. Then they transform into Power Rangers, and then they fight, and they lose. And then they each get into their own machine, and they fight, and they lose. And then all the machines come together with one big sword, and then they chop the head off the praying mantis that's attacking the city or whatever. That's how it works every time. They lose, they lose, they lose, and then they come together to form one big machine. And in that one big machine, they're finally able to do whatever it is they're supposed to do. A Power Rangers Zord is nothing compared to the Megazord. A Mech is nothing compared to the Voltron. You on your own is nothing compared to the church. To think that you can beat up that giant that's attacking the city is ludicrous. If you think you can do it on your own. You can't be just a living stone. You have to come together with other stones to form a spiritual house. The image Peter is using here of a spiritual house, it requires other people because we can't live the Christian life alone. It's not just that you can't do it as well on your own. It's not just that you need other people to help you do it better. It's that you can't do it at all on your own. Christ commanded us to make disciples of all nations. How are you supposed to do that without someone else? He told us to love one another. How can you do that apart from other people? Who's the one another if it's just you? Peter's saying that as you individually are built up as a living stone and made more like Christ, he is going to bring you together with other stones on the same path to form one spiritual house, his church. You can't do that alone. So you progress in the Christian life by going from one individual stone to now a group of stones forming one spiritual house. You coming together as a church is part of your progress in the Christian life. That's why I keep pushing the membership class so hard, why I mention it for weeks before it happens, why I have one every few months, whether there's necessarily a ton of people I think are going to sign up or not, is because I think it matters. You just can't do what God's commanded of you if you aren't joined with other believers, other stones to form that spiritual house. God has planned this, and he's planned it for a purpose. That purpose is the the third progression in the Christian life that we can see in our text today. We progress from a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. Look at verse 5 again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, that's why he causes us to come together to form the spiritual house, so that we will be a holy priesthood and do the things that priests do. So it's not so much a progress here from house to priest as if you're going along that linear line that I was talking about, but it's a purpose for the house whenever it comes together. We don't just come together in a church and then that's the end of God's plan for us. He has a job for us to do when we've been built up and brought together. You see, a house, it just kind of sits there. Its job is to be a house. When it stops being a house is when things go bad. But a priest, his job isn't just to sit there. His job is to do what priests do. He has a job to do. He's active. He does stuff. And we, together, as individual priests, are supposed to come together to form a holy priesthood. The priests in the Old Testament, they had very strict restrictions on them. They could only come from a certain tribe of people. They had to conduct themselves in very specific ways. They had to perform very specific duties in line with what God had told them to do. And they served the people around them by providing access to God for those people. And we know now that in the New Testament, Christ is our great high priest who's made the sacrifice on the cross for our sins once and for all. He is now our mediator between God and man. We don't need a priest between us and God. That's why the language of priests in the Bible is given to us as Christians, that we now act as the priest by being able to go directly to God. But we come together as individual priests to form one single priesthood as we follow in his footsteps. And we do that so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. This isn't the same thing again. This isn't the same priesthood again, that we now have to kill a bunch of animals to offer the sacrifice of blood to God to atone for our sins. But now, since Christ has offered his blood as our atonement, we still have sacrifices to give, but now they're spiritual sacrifices. We offer the sacrifices of praise and worship, of holiness and obedience We do what God has for us to do. That's how we offer our sacrifices personally. But part of being a priest is also offering sacrifices for others as well. Not that we are somehow obedient for them, but that we can be obedient to them. We can bring them along with us and show them the gospel of Jesus so that they can experience it for themselves and be saved by it just like we have been. That they can be priests after the same pattern that we are now. But I think it's really important to remember that last prepositional phrase in verse 5, through Jesus Christ. You see, even as we progress in the Christian life, from death to life, from a stone to a house, from inert houses to active priests, I think we have to remember the source of all these things. Jesus Christ. It's through his gospel through his sacrifice, that we can now respond in repentance and faith in order to be able to pass from death to life. But he doesn't just save us. He and his work now sustains us as we come together to form a church body. It's in light of his work that we now, out of obedience, perform our works. We don't start with the gospel and then move on to the stuff we think we're supposed to do on our own. We begin the Christian life through Jesus Christ, and we continue in the Christian life through Jesus Christ. That's how we progress. And because of all that progression, because of God's plan for us, we also progress from stumbling to honor. It's the fourth and final progression that we see in today's text, from stumbling to honor. Look at verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, because of the belief that we now have, the life we now live through Jesus Christ... There's no shame for us anymore. In verse 6, Peter's quoting from Isaiah 28, where God says that he has laid a foundation and cornerstone of salvation in his holy place so that whoever believes in this cornerstone, whoever runs to that cornerstone, won't need to fear no matter what's going to come their way. No matter what calamity might be brought upon them, whoever runs to the stone is safe. For these Christians under persecution, think about what a helpful callback that would be. They can understand what Peter's saying about passing from death to life and coming together and obeying and doing as though they should through the gospel. They can understand those things, but you think somewhere in the back of their heads, there has to be the thought, yeah, that sounds okay for peacetime, God, but we're under attack. What do you have for us here? It can't just be business as usual, right? But Peter's encouragement to them is that just as God has in times past promised to save his faithful through the trial. So now he's promising that same thing again. Christ is the cornerstone, chosen and precious. The one who believes in this cornerstone will not be put to shame. Though the calamity may come, though the culture may war, though the laws may change, belief in this chosen and precious cornerstone will keep you from ever having to be ashamed. The one who comes to him will not be ashamed. Peter explains the difference here between one who is believing in the cornerstone of Christ who receives honor and the one who does not believe who remains in a stumbling. Look again at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The one who believes not only avoids shame But he receives honor. He receives the promises, the the progress that we've already seen. But the one who doesn't believe, for him, shame is all he gets. He rejected a stone as if it were unworthy. But that stone has now not only been deemed worthy of being part of the structure, it's actually the cornerstone of the structure. The cornerstone is the first stone that gets placed. Everything else falls in line after its pattern. It knows this is the corner of the building, so it's going to go in this direction for this far from this point. It goes in the corner to determine where everything else goes, which direction it's going to face. It's the most important stone in the entire structure. That's the stone that's been rejected here. My family and I, when I was in college, started this thing uh, whenever we all came together randomly. I, I don't know why it started. I don't know how it started. But now, whenever we are all on vacation together, whenever we all have some time off and we're in the same room together, my mother has started doing puzzles. The kitchen table now, which used to be used for eating in the kitchen table, now is just littered with random colors and shapes and puzzle pieces, every time we're all together. For whole days on a time, it's just puzzles and pieces, and puzzles, and pieces. And every time we complain about it, she says, well, if you would help me, then it would be done and off the table. So guess what happens? Now, every time we come together, the whole family gathers up, and we're all trying to get this puzzle done so that we get our table back. And over time, we complained and complained, and then did it and did it, and now it's just part of what we do whenever we're together. But everyone knows, whenever you're doing a puzzle, the first thing you do is you find the four corner pieces. You find all four, you figure out where they go, and you set those down. From there, you do the edges. And once you have the edges down, now you build from the edges back toward the center to be able to connect the whole puzzle piece together. The edges, the corners, are what give you something to form the rest of the puzzle around. That's what a cornerstone does. So how embarrassing would it be if I walked up while we were doing the puzzle, I grabbed a piece off the table, and I confidently said, this piece doesn't go to this puzzle, and I just threw it away. And then, when the whole thing is done, we look, and there's a missing piece. And then we look a little bit harder, and we notice, wait, the missing piece is actually the corner piece. How did that happen? Do you know how ashamed I would be, how I would look in front of my family, how foolish I would be if I had to come back and tell everyone, yeah, that piece that I confidently threw away is actually one of the four corner pieces of this puzzle. So now it's unfinished and crooked and you guys have wasted the many, many, many hours that all of us have put into this whole thing. What kind of shame would that bring upon me and my family? I think that's the image that Peter's trying to give here. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. And this passage is quoted several times in the New Testament. Every time it's used to illustrate what's happened in the Jewish religious leaders rejecting Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus uses that text in the exact same way in Matthew 21. And then Peter, in speaking, not writing, uses it in Acts 4 to make the same point before the same leaders who rejected the same Jesus. But this rejection isn't just a shameful thing they did that one time. It's something they're still doing. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, present tense, because they disobey, present tense, the word, as they were destined to do. So Peter's quoting from Isaiah 8.14 to say that the same Jesus, the cornerstone that they rejected, is now the obstacle that is in their way, which keeps them from believing. Not that he's somehow actively hindering their belief, even though they're really trying hard to believe, but because the shame of having rejected Jesus and all those things that come with it is stopping them from being able to believe. They can't get over that shame to get to the point of belief. The stone that they have rejected is now the stone that is in their way. It is something they are tripping over and offended by to carry the puzzle piece analogy forward, it would be like if I recognized that the piece I had thrown away was exactly all that we needed to finish the puzzle. But because I would have to tell my family that I threw it away, because I would have to dig through the trash and find that piece, i just go, that's weird. I can't believe they sold us this puzzle with a missing piece. To avoid my shame, I've ruined the puzzle that was in front of me. To avoid my shame, I've hindered and stood in the way of what could have been. I've left the puzzle unfinished, which actually still results in shame, right? It's just the shame of an unfinished puzzle against all of us, rather than the shame directed specifically at me for stumbling over it initially. I think that's the difference between the one who receives honor by believing in him and the one who remains in shame by their lack of belief. They stumble, they are offended by the very rock of salvation because they do not obey the word. I think Peter's calling back here all the way to verse 22 in chapter one when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. There are those who obey the word, there are those who obey the truth and they receive a purified soul. They receive all this progress, all this honor and there are those who disobey the word And are not obedient to the truth. And they have only their shame. They don't get the finished puzzle. Because they aren't willing to go through the revealed foolishness. To get the good result. They're not willing to acknowledge that what they rejected. Is actually the answer to all their problems. So now they're just stumbling over it. They're just continuing to disobey the word. Whereas the one who is obedient to the truth. He gets a purified soul. He gets a completed puzzle if you will because he's willing to dig through the trash to find it, to acknowledge his sin, to repent of it. If you remember what I said when I talked about the meaning of that phrase in verse 22, I said that your soul isn't purified because you purify it through your obedience. It's not that you work and therefore have now a purified soul. Rather, when you're obedient to the truth, you receive a purified soul. When you acknowledge the truth and act in light of the truth, when you repent of your sins and stop stumbling over the rock that you've rejected, when you stop being offended by it, that's when you can put it in its proper place. That's when you pass from shame to honor. But there are some who just never make that shift. They never stop stumbling. They they never stop rejecting. They continue in their disobedience to the word until the very end. And this verse is saying that their destiny is death. Their destiny is dishonor. Their destiny is shame. I'm not going to spend much time here today talking about the implications of this phrase, as they were destined to do. But let me point out that Peter isn't trying to scare you or to say a larger point about predestination here, even though I think it really applies. His goal is to make you who have experienced these things secure in your destiny. He's trying to remind you that your continued obedience to the word, your perseverance through the trial and the persecution, is actually secured by the destiny of God for you. His plans for you are destined to come to pass for his elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. He's caused you to pass from death in your heart of stone to life as a living stone. He's now building us up together as a spiritual house. He's making us capable now of offering spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to him, which are pleasing to him. And in all these things, he's given us an honor which ensures that we will not be put to shame because we've passed from stumbling through repentance and faith to honor that we receive from him. That's what progress in the Christian life looks like. It's not always linear. It's not always clear and obvious. It's not always something you can snap your fingers and get to. But I think we'll acknowledge that the plan that God has for us as his people is a good plan. It's better than what we would want otherwise. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to read your word with your people to gather with your people, to be built up together, not only as living stones, but also as living stones together into a spiritual house. Thank you for the plan of progress that you have for us, that we are able to move forward in the Christian life to the point where we receive honor, where we offer pleasing sacrifices to you, where through our praise, adoration, through our holy living, you are pleased. And thank you for that. that is something that you have destined for us. It's not something that we are even capable of messing up. Thank you for this plan, for these people, and for this progress. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.